As the Dalai Lama likes to say, he says, if you're going to be successfully selfish, meaning fulfill your self-interest, be a wise selfish and be compassionate and altruistic. Because the first person who gets happy when you want the happiness of other beings is you. So if you've ever wondered what Buddhism has in common with the movie The Matrix, (laughs) you may get your answer in this week's conversation, where I sit down with one of the leading Tibetan Buddhist scholars in the world, Robert Thurman, who has been teaching for decades, um, written a tremendous number of books, has been a very close confidant of the Dalai Lama for some 50 plus years, founder of Tibet House in New York. And we talk about his incredible wide-ranging journey from being a kid growing up in the Northeast, going through Harvard and studying with a uh, a Buddhist Lama in New Jersey, and then finally ending up on the other side of the world, diving deep into Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism and the culture and befriending the Dalai Lama at a much earlier point in his life. And we also explore towards the end uh, a wonderful book, The uh, Man of Peace, um, which is out now, which is this tremendous graphic biography of the life of the Dalai Lama. We cover so many different topics from justice to compassion to love to the reality of today to goodness um, to bravery and really what it means to be in the world today. A lot of reframes, a lot of really big, deep questions. Excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. 1 size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. There's so many directions I want to go with you, but um, okay. And, uh, and you read the book? I, I have it sitting right here, and I was I sort of refreshing myself on Tibet House and what's been going on there. Lately, <laughs> oh, good. Looking at the catalog and saying, "Oh, I missed that," but I want to jump oh, into the next thing. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. So, 
I want to take a step back in time, though. Oh, right. I'm, I'm particularly interested in sort of your journey and, and, and some of the experiences that you've had along the way. Yeah. Big step back. You uh, kind of started out education-wise in Harvard, um, yeah. but then split from there. Well, I was here, here in New York, St. Bernard's, Exeter, New Hampshire, then oh, so Harvard. That's where you came up uh, originally. I ran away from Exeter, too. I never graduated. What happened? <laughs> uh, I left uh, spring of my senior year with a Mexican friend to join Fidel Castro's revolution ah. at the age of 17. And luckily for me, I was our our recruitment was declined <laughs> by the recruiters in Miami Beach. We didn't really look like useful mercenaries, <laughs> and so then we went to Mexico. What was the motivation? I mean, what was underlying? Well, that, some sort of romantic Latino. You know, he was the poet of the Sierra Maestra. We didn't. My my friend was this Mexican from a really right wing Mexican family, and we were just all into like uh, reading Spanish poetry, and it was just a, a little a little group, and it was like. Oh, you wouldn't go and really put your life on and really work on the poetic revolution against oppression, would you not? No, you wouldn't. No, I would. Oh, yeah, you know, who would? And then we went, you know, <laughs> like about three weeks before graduation. And, uh, and then, then long stories after that. But so I did that. Then Harvard, uh, I was married. They let me into Harvard anyway because I was a sophomore. In those days, they had advanced standing and, you know, you could. You know, I was already way ahead. Right. It was a horrible Exeter, like, Making you work too much, and uh, and then uh, did you have a sense for what you actually wanted to go to Harvard for, or was it? Uh, well, I had already been admitted there, and um, then I married during the time I, I had a year off, and I fell in love with someone and married them at eighteen, and uh, then you know I've got to support a family, so I must go back to school. Yeah, so I'm sense like there's a it's a lot of accelerated things that normally happen like at a slower. I know. Pace well, the life. big acceleration actually that was really good was uh, horrible, but it turned out really good was I lost an eye mm. in a in a garage accident, which was a real blessing because I used to race around, I could easily lost everything. And uh, that sort of brought me up against impermanence and death and so? purpose of life. Well, you know, you lose an eye, it's like a kind of a shock. Yeah. And, you know, you could have died, you know, type of thing. So then you realize, well, I can't just sit here reading Buddhist texts and Nietzsche and yoga and Carl Jung and Hermann Hesse and whatever it is, and then just maybe just still putter around and party, you know, nah. and hang out, you know. And instead, I've got to take it seriously, you know. Journey to the East, you know. Right, 19 or 20 years old? 20, yeah, 20. In your mind, is the word impermanence even part of your vocabulary then, or are you just like, this well, something? Well, death, death is, death, death sits there. Yeah. Death, death was there. Which, again, brings you up against that idea at an, a far earlier age than your average person usually Yes, I think that. that's why I said lucky, because yeah. otherwise I might have puttered along in a comfortable slot and had a midlife crisis or something from my previous life affinities or something like that. You kind of accelerated the existential crisis. Yeah, and then you can actually have a chance to learn a little something. Right. What led you, from there though, you decided to head to Well, I knew India had had what I needed. You know, Harvard didn't have the courses. Right. And India must have them, I felt, you know. And it was was connected to Buddhism, I thought. But when I got there, the Indians have forgotten their Buddhism and they actually don't really know what it is. But the Tibetans were just coming out, 61, 62 at that time. Yeah. Right. So did you, you ended up heading straight up to Dharamsala? Or? No, no, he wasn't in Dharamsala. Well, yeah, he was already in 61, I guess. Uh, I didn't, in 62, I didn't really, um, I was about to go to Dalhousie, actually. And then my father died, I came here, mm. came back for the funeral with a round trip back there. 
And then I met a, a Mongolian, old Mongolian lama in New Jersey. Because that's where you, you meet Mongolian lamas. And he was amazing. Because I was just going there to take a message back to India. I, w- I had a reservation like in three days afterwards. And, but meeting him was like uh, bowled me over, you know. And, and then I studied with him for a year and a half or two, or almost two years. And then he, he took me to, um, to meet the Dalai Lama again, you know. And then I stayed with them for a while. So was he the sort of initial introduction to Tibetan Buddhism? Yes, he, you know, I mean, I had I, the Tibetans I had met, and I had a job teaching them and everything, but I didn't really take up the job because of the of the heart attack of my dad, and uh, then um, so then the real first study was here in New Jersey, yeah, like two hours or hour and a half from Port Authority after hitchhiking and walking to India. <laughs> Over a year's period of time. It's really funny. It's like you go out into the world searching for it. And it's like, huh, an hour and a half That's away. Right. <laughs> That's right. But it's interesting, right, also, because you have these two experiences of impermanence. You you lose a sight in one eye, and then your dad passes shortly yeah, after. Yes. Did that sort of bring you back to that place of, huh? Well, yeah. Well, he was part of it. I mean, he yeah. he he had his own spiritual thing, and he defended me when I left against various people who wanted to have me institutionalized, you know. And, uh, you know, when I left, you know. And uh, and he said, no, he has this quest. Let him go on a quest, and it's good. What was, were you brought up in a, in a spiritual household? Or? No, not particularly. Uh, and I wasn't spiritual. I was not religious. I wasn't looking for religion. I was looking for better philosophy. You know? I had read right through the West, psychology and philosophy. Wittgenstein was my la- late, latest hero at that time, still is a kind of hero. But then they, they didn't just get it together, you know. And then Nagarjuna, when you met Nagarjuna, oh, Indian mm. philosophers, they're really the tops. They're really, they're a little bit beyond the Greeks, actually. So you end up then, I'm just trying to sort of get the timeline straight in my head. So you go there, you come back ostensibly to deal with your dad's yeah. passing, but then you end up meeting the Lama here in New Jersey yeah. when you're here, and you, then you stayed for another? Yeah, a couple of, well, I, be, I wanted to be a monk. I wanted to stay forever doing that, yeah, because... Those texts really opened the door for the to me for the nirvana, what it is, you know. Not that I attained it, of course, yeah. naturally not, but you know what it is, and that it's there, and sense of the imminence of it was very powerful to me. Every word and syllable I was speaking fluent Tibetan in ten weeks. It was like a home, you know, totally. Mm. What it, that's I mean, kind of stunning that you pick up a language and yeah. They, well, I was good at languages, but, yeah. I, but that one was I just lived and breathed it. It was just so, so wonderful. Was there something else going on there? What? <laughs> it's almost like... Previous the, life. Yeah, yeah, I yeah mean, definitely previous life. No question. People who doubted, they forget about it. They should just deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to have to v- revisit that. I'm sure. It, <laughs> I'm sure. I have no doubt. Because that is sort of a central tenet of a lot of uh, sort of like Buddhist philosophy. Well, it's common know. sense, actually. Because it's the majority of human, humanity, and also all of nature has continuity. Why is the energy, the super subtle energy of consciousness, the one energy that has no continuity, or put it more drastically, it has the continuity of being nothing right now. So therefore, we're all nothing, and it's all meaningless, and we're random mutation, and we're a bag of cheap chemicals. You know, the materialist thing is really not satisfactory, mm. and it's not. There's no evidence for it. There's no evidence that we're nothing. That there is not. There could actually there nothing doesn't exist. You mean assuming that after after we quote pass or leave this physical body, there is nothing. Yeah, the people that. who have an image, a picture that you know the, that death is like a sleep, big sleep, right. and a big oblivion, 
and that because they're bra- they're only brains, you know, they're just brains, and uh, there's no there's no real thing inside the brain. You know, there's no ghost in the machine sort of thing. You know, yeah. people who have that, which are a lot of people, are adopting a view on based on complete blind dogma, because no one ever discovered that, right? No one ever reported back. <laughs> and and the key is that if that's the case, you know, it's if the reductionist thing, you reduce down to to a nothing. It means you're already a nothing. So then, bang, you know, you blow your brains out and you're nothing. And then you get there quicker. But that means you're going around with a picture that that's what you actually essentially are. Do you follow me? Mm. And that's counterintuitive and counter common sense. It isn't. You know, the shoe is on the foot of the people who argue for some kind of continuity, whatever it might be. It might not be exactly the Buddhist picture or the Christian picture or the any particular kind of picture. It might be something completely different, something out of Star Trek or something. But it's some kind of continuity. That's the main point. Mm. That would be the, the rule in nature, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess it, you know, it's sort of like the conservation of matter or the preservation exactly. of energy over time. Yeah. Um, but when I think where people struggle is when you frame that and when you give it a word like reincarnation, well, I know. all of a sudden it feels oh, like sure. because bizarre. That's, like how could I have been alive in a past? Because life? the high priests of our culture are the natural scientists. Hmm. And they go around swaggering with their assurance that, yeah, that's, oh, that's all superstition that we know and all this kind of thing. Meanwhile, it's utterly unevidenced. They are supposed to be operating on experience and evidence. And nobody ever experienced nothing. Hmm. <laughs> or at least they didn't ask for a Nobel Prize for it, you know. Yeah, it is that really fine line between, you know, science and faith. Uh, or maybe it's not so fine a line. But um, but isn't there a certain amount of faith in the assumption also in the idea of sort of the, the 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 idea of continuity? Well, no, it's kind of yes. I mean, there's a faith that you, that you know th- things are there, like there's a faith in Broadway is still outside. You know, I have faith in that. I can't see it; it might have disappeared. You know, like in like uh, in the Leonard DiCaprio movie or something. You know, it might have gone. <laughs> But uh, but we have faith that we don't think of that though as a kind of mysterious faith. It's a common sense faith, you know. And uh, and actually, people who have but the people who have faith that they're going to be nothing and there will be no consequence to their life, however well or badly they lived it, that's a faith that is definitely blind because there's no experiential evidence for that. Right. Yeah, and then but then there's also the other side of it, which is faith in transcendence. Well, yeah. Well. Yeah, well, people seek transcendence, you know, because they are sensitive and there's a lot of things you bump up against in the world. And, you know, that when you get old and really creaky and you're, and you're aching and in agony, you want to get away from it all. And a lot of people, I think, miss, uh, lately, especially, I don't know why, it's been very strong in my, maybe the things I've been start reading, studying, translating. But, you know, a lot of spirituality is skewed into this idea of escaping from relationship, you know, getting into some vastness where it's just you or something like that, you know. Or you maybe God is there or what you or whatever you want to think. So transcending and staying transcended. <laughs> and actually that's a kind of psychotic idea. It's just, just as psychotic in its own way as the I'm going to transcend into nothing and then I'll, I'll never have a problem, you know. And um because if you newly experience something, even a state of transcending your boundaries, then it's a relational experience. It can't be an absolute thing. Because a relational being cannot have an absolute experience, actually. Not possible, right? And unless they're already having it and they don't know it. That's, no. po- that's possible. 
we're already having it and we don't know it, then that's possible. And that's what the Buddhists say. We are in nirvana, actually. An enlightened being sees us as in bubbles of bliss in an ocean and, but the, and then feels sorry that we don't understand it. So then he tries to help us find the understanding of it. Not ask us to believe it. That becomes nihilistic. But ask us to find the understanding. So lately I just said, no, I mean, I don't really know because I haven't attained transcendence or enlightenment. I've transcended this and that here and there, but I haven't t- attained it, mm-hmm. you know? I tell myself anyway. But lately I've been running this thing of like, you really don't attain it. And, and, and in the, by that same light, there's a famous phrase in the Heart Sutra. It says, there's no attainment, but there's no non-attainment. They also say, that's kind of exciting. So it's like you've <laughs> got to hold this duality. Something like that. Uh, but, but we do that. We can do that. For example, you go in the morning, you shave nicely, do a good job. <laughs> and you do that, and you have a knowledge that this is a mirror reflection, which you see through the window of the mirror. And you don't think it, you don't have to think it, you intuitively know it. And you just pay attention to what you see there. And you even correct the left, right, you know, like flip and so on. And so you can hold this other connection to the fact that it's a mirror. You know that. So you have a double knowledge, actually. You hold that cognitive dissonance every day without any effort. Mm. So the key would be to know we're in nirvana while we're taking care of relationships. But that's how Buddhism defines enlightenment, actually. So then the idea of transcendence isn't well, if it's we're like here tra- already. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's the only way it could be here. Because it's uncreated, you know, it's absolute. This has no boundary between it and you. So you can't newly get it, but you can find out you've always been there. Maybe you can find Finally, it's inexpressible. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> w- would that be, because I've always looked at the transcendent philosophies, including Buddhism, and I have a yeah. very, very, very basic of it as, you know, you aspire to transcend the cycle of suffering into this state of nirvana. Or, yes. But what you're offering is is maybe it's less about transcending well, and offering, what, opening to the fact that it exists. Well, you do what you transcend is your sense of being an absolute separate being, confronting an absolute other world, which is of course is a losing proposition. You know that's the samsaric suffering. You know because you can't overwhelm it, you can't get away from it. You know it's sometimes okay, but then it gets you, right? Yeah. And so you're at your transcending. So the transcendence is still there. It's not that it's not there, but the thing is the transcendence is here. That's the good part, actually. But but Buddha let some people think that they were going somewhere because for a while, and because some people cannot conceive that, you know, they're, they're too oversensitive. Some of the highly intelligent Brahmins in his time, you know, the the ascetics and the seekers, you know, and the, they were just, they, they were too sensitive to things, and the idea that it, this could be bliss was beyond their, they, they would have just said... Well, this meaning the here and now. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they would just say, that's ridiculous, or they would say, well, then I can do whatever I want, doesn't matter. You know, they, they misinterpreted, you know, so he it's a little, was a little in reserve for a while. The non-duality, what do we call non-duality? You know? Right. So if we work on the assumption that this could be it, and the transcendence, i just trying to wrap my head around it, the transcendence that then we talk about is transcending the notion that we are in some way separate from others, from the world That's around right. us. And it's transcending the struggle of us against them, and it's feeling the oneness of all of us. And I call it the expensive oneness. Mm. I, the cheap oneness is the mystical thing where there's, it's all one, but nobody's there. <laughs> <laughs> Which I consider psychotic, actually. I have to face that it is. 
And not that I haven't craved it in my life here or there, but uh, whereas the expensive one is it's all one and we're all here together. And therefore, if someone's freaking out, that's our sole concern. By theory, I can't pretend that it's by experience fully because the, 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 that becomes our sole concern because they say when we feel this oneness incorporating all life, we only can melt into that feeling through a bliss, through a kind of transcending bliss, like when you melt out of yourself, out of your boundary. And so you're blissful enough where you can then, you don't need anything more yourself, but you realize that those who don't know the situation are really struggling. And you feel that's where the source, and that bliss is the source of your compassion for them because they don't need to be in that struggling. You feel, and as I say, I'm saying that by theory, Hmm. I don't pretend. I'm not pretending. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I wouldn't because... dare. My wife would throw me out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> we can't have that. That's um, right. But it's interesting, right? Because if you take that at face value, then, you know, it's, I, I've always sort of deconstructed compassion as empathy plus altruism, but it you're is. not necessarily saying it has to be empathy. It's almost no, like... No, it is empathy. Sure it is. How could you stand being empathic to infinite beings if you didn't have, if it wasn't reflected in the mirror of the blissfulness of their deepest reality and your deepest reality? In other words, you, you, you have the connection to that mirror knowledge, that intuition underlying has to be unified with it. And then you could stand to be empathetic. You know, you're like a, actually, I always think of Buddhahood as, do you remember the, um, the Star Trek one where they met V'ger? No. Remember that? I don't remember that. You never remember that? Uh -huh. They met this satellite that was out there, a machine that was devouring worlds. Uh -huh. And, you know, Kirk and everybody, it was the old Kirk one, and they right. went out there. And actually, a guy named Frank Converse, who I knew as a young person, the actor, he played a lieutenant on the ship. And this, this, it turned out that V'ger was the voyager that we had sent, that they'd sent out in the 20th century, right? And it had the drive to know everything. And then one thing it didn't know was what was it like to be a living being and a human being. It really wanted to know that. And so it would consume things, but then it would be frustrating because once it consumed them, then they were gone and it still didn't know what it was like to be them. You see? Mm. So then Frank said, well, listen, you don't have to consume me. I'll give myself to you. I mean, he was a lieutenant, somebody. And then the, that supercomputer, you know, sci-fi supercomputer and the human being merged. And it was like, and she had, of course, a female voice, feature, and very attractive. <laughs> so it was like, it was like father mother union, you know, and uh, and it was all knowledge, and and that knowledge was uh, was empathy and sympathy. Because that sort of, to me, I don't know why that's like enlightenment must be like that. It seems. To me. Well, it's it's so interesting, right? Because she kind disappeared of like... then. She she merged into a vast universe. There was no machine there anymore to destroy. Because there's no anything. distinction at that what? point. There's almost like no distinction. She was everywhere. Between, yeah, right. Like um, With him. He he said he gave up, you know, he, he was happy apparently. Yeah. It's it's a little, a little bit worrisome, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I think we freak out also in, in on so many levels when sort of discussing True, this. We do. But it's interesting too, because the, the idea of the singularity is almost like this merging of like machine and consciousness all as one, like Ray Kurzweil, and there's all this the singularity oh, yeah. institute these days. Well, because he wants because he's a materialist, so he's going into where we're gonna be all machine. That's his own escape. You know? Right, rather than the other way. Which, which is, is kind of demented. It's gonna peel your brain like an onion, you know, uh, with like a fine slicer and then supposedly program its structure. And I think that's very unrealistic, actually. Yes. It's the singularity. But it's kind of exciting even to see it, but I think it's unrealistic. The, other, the singularity might be, on the other hand, 
I think, the, you know, the one that is in the back of that book, the Dalai Lama's, mm. in the epilogue, Dalai Lama's vision of the world working out. You know, Bucky Fuller had a great thing that I love, the old Bucky Fuller that everybody's forgotten about, where he said that the world is beautifully designed for our participation. And if we didn't have scarcity psychology and freak out and kill each other and people hoard so much and not share it and then, and then politicians do stupid things, that actually it's very workable and that we have a cultural... He blamed all the religions and he included Buddhism because he, he you know, like Westerners think Buddhism is about only suffering. He did that. He didn't know that. Well, Buddhism, Buddha's thing is based on having discovered happiness, but he thinks about suffering. So he blamed them all for giving us an inferiority complex, which becomes self-fulfilling. Like this is not an adequate planet. It kind of sucks. So we better kill other people so we'll have more room. And you know, it's it's a whole thing like that. And I love that he had that kind of positive vision. And uh, so the rather than machine, all us all becoming machines. We all, us humans, become really more choosing love, finding the power of love and compassion out of wisdom, not out of some big goody-goody, but actually because we see that's what the real energy is. Mm. You know, contrary to our culture that tells us that the good guy ends up hanging on the meat hook and the bad guy runs things and lives in the White House, etc. Although, you know, although we have, my wife reassures me all the time that this won't go on for too long because... That gentleman really doesn't like it's his first experience of public housing and he won't want to stay there forever. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Every Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. It's interesting. I, I had the chance to sit down with Sakyong Mipham Rinpoche a couple of years back, and we were Which talking about Sakyong Mipham. Oh, that's Sakyong Mipham. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, from Shimpala. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things I asked him was, you know, like, because he he said, you know, he believes the fundamental nature of, of human beings is goodness. Yes. That's and nice. and had to know that. And I asked him, I said, What is what do you think it means to live a good life? And you know, like what, what word comes up? And for him the word that came up was bravery, which is the courage to sort of step into that place because it feels like when you look around the world today, the argument for the fundamental sort of nature of humanity is goodness. It's hard. Oh, sure. It's hard to just own Absolutely. that and to see it. It's so much so that it's it's sort of esoteric, actually, traditionally in the Buddhist world. It's a little bit esoteric because it's, uh, you, know, you know, Voltaire ridiculed it, right, in the Candide, you know, and um, the best of all possible worlds, you know. And in Buddhism, it's kind of esoteric. It's considered for the mainstream people, okay, just face the suffering and then really try to do something about yourself as an individual because the world will always be like that kind of suffering. Some sort of idea that actually the world is headed onto a kind of omega point, like a Shardana thing, or like the Shambhala thing that the Buddhists have. But that Shambhala thing was esoteric, you know, until just lately. Yeah. It's now come sort of everywhere, which I th- because I think it's happening personally. At least now at my age, when I was in the 60s, I felt it was happening next week always, and I was very <laughs> frustrated, you know, a negative administration by a negative leader by a negative leader. I was very frustrated that they weren't living up to that standard. But uh, now I, it may take a little longer, they say 400 years from now. But I think that's an exaggeration. But I think it is human consciousness. One reason we have now such incredibly bad oligarchic leadership everywhere, now finally really overtly and nakedly here, but and, we've, and less overtly, we've already had it for a while on and off, is that the people are more gentle, they're more aware, you know, Facebook, interconnection, the media before, even regular TV, seeing people of other races and things and seeing films about them and becoming familiar with how they look and what they feel like and how they sound and loving their music or something, you know, their fabrics or whatever it is. And uh, and like Chinese people seeing white faces and not thinking it's just like some hairless rabbit, you know, with with funny eyes, blue eyes. And so this is weaving humanity together in a certain way. And the old way of where you have your tribal enemy and you say they're subhuman and we can exterminate them and then we'll have more land. 
is like no longer too doable because there's a kind of there is a feeling of empathy through the Facebook and the TV and this and that, and that's really accelerated to a high point now. But then, those people who sort of more have that vision and, say, as you put it nicely, I think, step into that place of being more living in the goodness and feeling confident about it, can be abused easily. They can be tricked and fooled and hornswoggled and conned, as 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 people here have been lately, rather extravagantly. <laughs> they can be. But on the other hand, the encouraging thing is the people who do that and who are like, trying to dominate are getting so evidently incompetent and incapable. And you never can achieve whatever they try to do. You know. Their wars don't get won. Their nothing works. You know, their walls get breached, you know, and they feel prisoned inside them, actually. And so that's kind of, in a weird way, that's incredible. Of course, that's maybe my rationalization faculty <laughs> going over time. But to me, that's uh, that's a kind of good sign that the old militaristic, let's conquer more pen, more budget for the Pentagon, it's just so totally unworkable. Yeah, I mean, when you look around the world, it is. It's sort of. I almost feel like, depending what your wiring is, depending what your lens is, you can point to something substantial to validate yes. your the trend that you want to identify. Yeah, as sure. This is what's evolving. This is what's mm -hmm. happening. But it's interesting to see you say sort of point to a lot of what's happening with technology on kind of flattening the world. And mm. because so many people are pointing to technology as, yes, flattening the world, but also disconnecting people from deeper communion, relationship, conversation. That's true, too. That is true, too. But, you know, it's a, it's a maybe it's a phase, you know. But my only point there is it was very easy you know, like the Dalai Lama always says, you know, he's, he learns that in that book. You know, he supposedly, the reincarnation of this thousand-armed, thousand-eyed thing, you know, of which is considered like the angel of compassion of all Buddhas. And and uh, I'm not saying he is or isn't. I don't know. He would deny absolutely. You say, oh, don't, don't, don't. I'm a simple monk. He goes like that. But what that the concept itself is, you have an eye in the palm of all these thousand hands, and the thousand hands are just a symbol for infinite numbers of sins. So it's a seeing everywhere and everything and being in touch with everyone's feelings and therefore feeling their feelings in a way where it becomes unbearable that they suffer to you. It's like their suffering becomes as unbearable to you as your own. And I feel that the, that the, even though they're you know maybe not talking to their roommate, and they're out there and they're watching some people starving in Somalia or someplace and um, in the Sahel. And, and then, you know, give $10 or worry about it, feel upset about it. It's kind of a beautiful thing. Like, you know, remember the, the Sumatra earthquake yeah. and tsunami and, and the huge outpouring, you know, from everybody who wasn't getting their pension very well and losing their job. But still, they were sending some old sweater or something. You know, it was really wonderful. Yeah. Really great, I think. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it that way, I think you're right. It is, I think it it makes it harder to avoid suffering that That's you, right. that you might not normally be aware of or choose to seek right. to see on a daily right. basis. And I mean, identify with other people. Yeah, That's the thing. I mean, when falling in love is identifying with one beloved, which is just everyone experiences as a big transcendent, amazing, you know, dan dancing mm. in the rain, Gene Kelly, you know, like whoa. And somehow, then that you don't want any kind of pain in that beloved, you know, you, you want just her to be happy or him to be happy or whatever it is, or that child, and uh, that we could begin to have a, traces of that 
feeling about each other in a longer plane is, you know, that's why I made his life there in, in our book. Yeah. That he stands for that, that that's a human possibility. Because the, the domination mode, mode, you know, the dominatrix, dominator mode, is like you have to dominate because there's, it, it's inevitable that beings are going to be selfish and they're going to destroy you. So that, that legitimizes you to look, lock yourself up, and then you'll be fine. And actually you won't. You'll be miserable and lonely, right. actually. Yeah, I wonder sometimes whether um, we see so much opportunity for so much suffering that rather than opening to that and feeling it and being moved to in some way intervene, we see so much possibility for us not being able to shut it off sure. enough to be able to get through every day, and right. that it, it almost has the opposite effect of us having, like retreating well, from wanting can. to feel yes, it. So, you know, Carl Sagan was big on compassion fatigue and this mm, kind of yeah. thing. But lately, I've got really appreciate Buddha's life, you know. And there's one aspect of his life, you know, when if you remember the story, that's pretty common, but but maybe you didn't hear the particular one that. On that day, that, that early morning when he attained the so-called the enlightenment, nirvana under the tree, before he, when he was on the event horizon of this, this vast feeling of placing him, being able to experience himself in the context of vast interconnection and yet his unique individuality, realizing that. When he did that, just before that, he remembered his infinite previous lives, they would say. And then you would say, well, why don't we remember even a few of them? Well, we suffered a lot in those lives. We, so we shut down. We died many times. We had terrible things happen. Like, I don't remember breaking my left wrist playing hockey in the ninth grade. You know, I don't remember the pain, the bone crushing, horrible pain. And so that's a natural thing that we do. So you'd have to be, that's what I said, you have to have a kind of different vision of the deeper reality of this situation to be able to be open to infinite feeling in this situation and face mm -hmm. the suffering. So you he, he, you have a double vision, in other words, simultaneously, which which is inconceivable, I think, normally. Yeah. And, Dualistically, and, it's inconceivable. And it, and it also requires us to, to use the phrase that's being kicked around a lot these days, play a much longer game than we're used to playing. Pretty much what? Play a much longer game yeah. than we're used to playing in the context of life and humanity. And Well, you know. yeah, yes and no. In other words, it's, yes, as far as humanity ripening to that. But then they say that when you really get that feeling... When you reach that, that you see, that you also attend all the future. You feel that that the time, it isn't like you come into the now by excluding past and future, which I'm afraid a little bit. Some people misunderstand the power of now, but it's like you, the now incorporates all the past and future. Mm -hmm. So you see, you see that everything working out, the future working out of people who are now having a different, terrible time. You see that as present now. Actually, that's what, uh, we're totally jumping around. <laughs> but but let me just share right away, since since uh, you brought this conversation so deep, what I call my consolation prize for me being still unenlightened after like what should be like fifty years, <laughs> fifty five years of effort, and that is that the way that it's defined when I eventually do in some future life, perhaps, or maybe in my, my last moments of this one, a few years from, two decades from now, hopefully, knock on wood. I, by definition, I will revise my experience of all the past nows, where I realized I was always in that everything was always all right. So then, I will be like you and our conversation will be be in the, on this mirror surface of nirvana, 
in my own experience, retroactively, mm. as it will be in yours. You know, right now we're like we're going to do the job, we're going to finish, we're going to go here, go back up Broadway, mm. go down, whatever, take a nap, have dinner, and you know, do all the things that that, that we focus on doing and doing that. But later, this and then all the other things will all be seen as one smooth flow on the surface of this nirvana mirror. You know? That's my consolation. So I console myself. <laughs> I'll be really enjoying things and really happy and really in the moment later. Yeah. Now. <laughs> right. It, it all sort of merges into some <laughs> one infinite state. One of Buddha's names is Triadvajna in Sanskrit, which means knower of the three times. Mm, past, you know. present, future. Huh. That's the name of the Buddha. Why Buddha? In other words, and that's his only excuse, actually. Right? In other words, he had a bodhisattva vow, I will not attain nirvana until all beings have attained. Right? So what's he, how does he get off attaining nirvana and taking a hike <laughs> in 2,800 or 2,600 years ago? You know, he broke his promise. Unless our future nirvanas, you know, are, he's with us all the way through to our future nearby. In other words, he's, he's he permeates the time as well as space. As yeah. I would say. Or looking at your sort of like what you offered earlier, we are in fact all there now. Yeah, um, but we haven't quite owned. That's that. right. That's right. And then the the job of someone who incorporates both the specificity of differentiation and the sort of vastness of freedom completely in one package. One inconceivable cognitive dissonance uh, unifying pack, uh, uh, insight, you know, experience. Their responsibility is to try to make the way, make the environment, make the the teachings, make the path. You know, set, wrap us with it. You know, always, always be some force that wraps us with it. You know, yeah. like a great a force of goodness around us. You know, <clears throat> like Sikyong, the Sik, what not Sikyong, the Sakyong. Sakyong. Yeah. There's a Sikyong also. Sikyong, Sakyong. But that's very nice for me. He has a lovely little video that I saw that I like. I don't know him very well, but he has a nice video, which has the refrain, "What about me? What about me?" Which uh, which deals with the Buddhist thing they talk about the source of suffering being self cherishing, mm. self preoccupation, you know, self obsession, you know, like what's where what am I getting out of this type of thing all the time, constantly evaluating, and therefore always being dissatisfied. It's a very strong Buddhist psychological thing. What's your take psych- on that? Like, what? what's, what's your lens on that? What's your... Well, that's a very deep thing, of course. You know, in other words, it's against what we think. You know, as the Dalai Lama likes to say, he says, if you're going to be successfully selfish meaning fulfill your self-interest. Be a wise selfish and be compassionate and altruistic because the first person who gets happy when you want the happiness of other beings is you. So the, the compassionate person, they may not be able to help anybody else yet, but they're already feeling better by not focusing on what their own you know, output is you know, and thinking of what's the output for the other. You know, Then that... That releases them from this self-evaluation, which was always, always inadequate. Everything you know, you know, we all know people who are particularly like spoiled as children, maybe or something, and they're very. What am I getting out of it? And they're very dissatisfied. Always, they're always they're rebooking their seat constantly on whatever vehicle it is, you know, to mm. get a better one. You know. Yeah. So we've gone kind of into the deep end of the pool pretty quickly, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is fun. And at the same time, there will be folks listening saying where, where their heads are kind of spinning right now. And part of what I'm fascinated by is how can you make ideas like this accessible on a practical everyday level with somebody who 
just wants to know like, what can I do today? Right. Can I leave this conversation saying, this was really interesting. I'm not exactly sure what just happened, (laughs) but it's interesting and I'm curious. Yes. What simple thing might I be able to do in this moment, in this next moment, to start to buy into it, to start to experience these things in some way? Beautifully put. This does bring me back to the book because, you know, I had written a book, Why the Dalai Lama Matters, which is just words, you know, and then some charts and things about the geopolitical situation and, you know, Tibet as the 60-year-long standing rock, you know, that's still standing against this industrial resource destruction and environment destruction, et cetera, and even war and domination and so on. So, so, but then this one is a comic book. And so what we, one thing that we can do, I mean, there are a lot of things, if we had a second hour, we could do a lot of things, but say there are a lot of practical things we could do, you know, mindfulness, people know, meditate, do yoga, like take care of yourself, but, and take care of some others. But I wrote this book because we are not given good models our culture does not give us models of goodness being stronger than evil. Mm. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
it really rubs us, rubs our noses in evil, and that somehow goodness is nice, but you're going to get wasted. You're going to be a martyr. You're going it's to be almost destroyed. like it's painted as weak, like goodness exactly. is weakness. Goodness is weakness. Compassion yeah. is a doormat, philosophy, and all this. And so the Dalai Lama's life, everyone is always amazed. He's at the head of a people who are have been genocided or ethnocided at the very least. And he's been struggling for them against the world powers. You know, he knows all of the world powers. As, you know, he's met every ruler, head of state, except the Chinese ones uh, around the world. And uh, he's joyous, and he finds, the, he sees a bliss there. And and uh, when John Oliver asked him the other day, like, well, how, why do they hate you so much, the Chinese? And then I was talking with um, Joe Donahue, who told me he interviewed him a few years ago, and Joe also asked him, like, don't you feel terribly frustrated that people don't follow your thing, they don't respond to you on the personal, practical level? Well, how do you react? What do you do? You know. And then he says, wait. <laughs> with a big smile. He says, wait. And uh, meaning, I think, a kind of confidence that even the enemy will finally realize that they will achieve their goal not by crushing you and not by doing that, because there'll be endless more people to crush. They will achieve their goal by befriending you, by stop stop the bitterness and stop the enmity and stop the resentment and so on. And that's where happiness will come to people, you know. So he represents a life that shows that in living, you know, that's why his life is so valuable to know its detail, how he stands up nonviolently and lovingly to even abuse and violence, and vigorously, not, not internally crumbling to it, you know, holding his own with it. And then people say, well, but he didn't get to it free yet. So I answered that, how are they doing in Afghanistan? How are they doing in the Middle East? Everybody's violent to the teeth there. And it's all a standoff. And nobody's really won, well, and they never will win. And the cycle of violence, right? Jesus told us, many, many other great rabbis told us, you violence begets violence. You know, Buddha told us centuries before. So uh, we need to revise. One thing that we can do is revise our sense of the environment we're in and realize that to choose love, choose the good path, choose patience, choose non-retaliation, choose forgiveness. These are beneficial to us right now, all of us. And when we do that, we're fitting with the larger sweep of humanity. You know? There was a great thing in the Gandhi movie, which did happen in his life, where he had to call off a big, a big uh, nonviolent strike fast because some people went overboard and burned down a police station and killed some police and things like that. And so he didn't like that, so he called it off. And then the person said to him, well, how do you console yourself when things go wrong all the time? You know? And he said, well, that went wrong, he said. But tens of hundreds of millions of people didn't burn things down. They did stand patiently in front of someone they were not getting along with. They talked with them. They helped someone across the street. The pattern of human life works because people are very, very actually empathetic and altruistic automatically, you know. Yeah. An old lady is there, you stop the cab and help her get across the street. It's just an instinctive thing humans have. And the dominators, the militarists and the dominators, the oligarchs, they want you not to think that. They want you to think you're stupid if you do that. And they model that. And then, so then people feel, we say, what can I do today was your question. So if they, people feel, well, I shouldn't be like the people who are losing. I should be like the winners, you know, and then they're going to, they're going to find it difficult to do the things that actually will make them happy, which is yield a little bit, which is give something, which is, 
you know, see something in a different way, allow some of the opening to be a little different than they expected them to right. be, and something like that, right? And I, that resonates so deeply with me. It, and the thing that comes to mind, though, is yes, I understand weight. I yes, I understand the idea of looking at the macro, looking at long term. Yes. What do we say then, though, to the mother who's just lost a child to aggression right. today? Right. And like you see that this like this woman and say, wait, and yeah, think big picture. Well, you know what? It won't necessarily be great to say to her, isn't it horrible and everything else is horrible? It might not help either. Yeah. So it depends on how you see it. You see, if you get into the thing that, well, this child in the flow of life is hitting another form. That's where the continuity thing is really critical. You know, in Japan, they have a whole huge thing that all the different schools of Japanese Buddhism are involved in around the Bodhisattva Jizo, which his name is Jizo, which means earth treasure. And he's the one who, they in their, their mythology, he goes and empties hells and things, you know, and he helps beings be reborn well. And so when, and abortion was the, birth control thing of choice in Japan because of some cultural thing about condoms, I guess. I don't know exactly why. So the poor Japanese women had to do that a lot. And in their, you know, recovering from the war and their their country having been devastated by their own militarists being stupid and unrealistic. And so they, they, they go to that to ask that angel, which is for them a kind of angel, to see that the being that they lost goes to even better, nicer family, better place, someone who can keep them and has another human chance because they think human life is so precious and valuable. So, I mean, you can't tell that to someone who doesn't have that belief system, of course. But, for example, sure, if you see that the horrible thing that happened to them is one thing, but they remain an amazing creature with bliss in their cells. And the being who lost that body and that embodiment and that beautiful mother who loved it so much is going to find other such things and they're going to be attracted to kindness and to generosity and a breast that has milk flowing from it, a womb that will accept, you know, a condo person without like any like ID. <laughs> And so you see it as, as not the end of everything, not the end of life. You see it as a very tragic thing, but something that life will go on in all for, for everyone involved. You might not say anything. You might say how awful if that was good. You might give a hug. You might, the, you know, it would depend on the situation and the person's view of what you would do. But if your feeling was really open to the person, and yet they felt from you a kind of feeling, a deeper feeling of calm, that, you know, confidence in the, in the ultimate turning of things, a vision even that the present, within it, there's some, there are some redeeming factors, you know. And, um, you know, like animals, sometimes in famine, predators, they will eat their young when they all die, when the mother, and the, there's a famous story about the Buddha when he was a young prince who was a very advanced bodhisattva, and when they tell that story, they tell, they say, don't try this you know, to the reader, which is a good sign. It means that in India, people were taking altruism seriously, you know, that they have, they feel they have to say that, you know, like, don't, don't try this at home. And the Buddha was this prince, and he was with his brother walking in the woods from a royal picnic, and he saw, it was a terrible famine in the, in the land. And this mother tigress was about to eat her cubs, four cubs, mother tigress. And they were skeletal, all of them. They were going to die anyway, right? 
So he says to his brother, go get some food from the thing. We'll share it with her. This terrible that she's doing that. And then he himself offered his own body. Then when the guy was out of the way, he jumped off the cliff down into the lair and gave his body. And he said, this life, I give you my body. In the future, I will give you liberation, nirvana, when I'm a Buddha, you know. And then those were his first five disciples, they say, you know, those that tiger and the cubs. And it's like, um, so, I mean, the, the, even in that animal thing, the mother is, loves those cubs, of course. She bore them, she nurses them, she's a mammal. But she wants to live to have another batch, you know. And then she'll even consume the protein of them, you know, in the nature, then we'll do that. And you could see that as though, oh, nature is so horrible, red, to, red in tooth and claw. But also you could see the compassion of the mother, longer term, you know, the, her, the, the celebration of the viability of life, even in this terrible environment of starvation and mm. death, you know. So, yeah, it, which is still, it's, I, I, know. I hear you. Listen, and there's no solution. Yeah. The end of the, the, the graphic um, biography of the Dalai Lama, the comic book, whatever, which is meant to try to make him more real to people, yeah. and it, may, it shows his reality, it ends really badly for Tibet. Tibet is still in a bad place. Yeah. The Chinese are still not relenting, although I think it's a leftover policy from the past communist leaders. And I personally have great faith in, in President Xi Jinping when he gains fully control of the, you know, the different gangs that those politburos are, are constituted by, like they comprise those, the, that thing like a politburo. You know? So I think there will be big change. I have this thing, feeling. And so we leave it there. But then he has, he has a vision wait, we'll see, you know. And he sees that all as workable, you know, and he's been, he's very confident about it. And if you meet him, it sort of liberates us. But you see, it's a gradual process. Just me saying something, him saying something, whoever it is, even, I don't know, if uh, whoever came here and said something. When we're long indoctrinated into justifying our own closure, about in some instances and contexts of our own person, and our own self-concern by a worldview and a cosmos and people who are supposedly models showing this, showing the negative wins and the positive loses, it's going to take time to revise this, to really change it deeply. It's like, it's like you know, to neural habit pattern of seeing the worst and feeling that's the reality. Although there, you know, there's even the Christians, you know, Christians unfortunately have this pattern very, very strongly. But did you know, people don't know, that for 320 years, the Christians never worshipped the crucifix. There were no crucified Jesuses. The, they, the image they had of Jesus that was used by them is something called Christos Pedagogos, which means Christ the teacher, who's this strong-looking guy like a strong Socrates sort of type, throwing over the money changers from the temple and you know, like, now I'm going to heal. Now I don't care if it's Sunday or Friday or whatever it is. You know, I'm going to heal and I'm going to take care of people. Sort of strong and powerful. And the, the crucified one being the sort of thing that sort of goes to the subconscious was planted there by the Roman emperor, Constantine, from the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century. And he, guess who, you know, render unto Caesar and render unto the Lord. Yeah, you can render unto the Lord and, and you might get rendered and I'm in charge. Me and my followers, you know, the emperors, you know. So he was using the Christian thing, actually. And he was creating this sort of the Roman Empire, that using it to dominate people and subverting, in that sense, the wonderful rabbinic message of Jesus, which of love, you know, the love thy neighbor as thyself, yeah. you know. He really was. People don't know that. So 
don't your I love your realism that you're not going to like jump up and say, Oh, here's Shambhala is down here on 79th and Broadway. And I I have to discipline myself like that too. I think it's correct. But but on the other hand, you know, it's like I tell my student, you have to sort of get used to this different narrative, you know. Yeah. The, the reincarnation thing, for example, read the work of Ian Stevenson, you know, not Buddhists, but Ian Stevenson and people who investigate children who can remember previous lives. And read or read um, Michael Newton, you know, Journey of Souls. And these, you read these, you become more familiar. Read the former life stories of the Buddha, what are called the Jataka tales, and sort of get used to a different narrative, you know. Yeah. Is there a conception or a dealing with the concept of justice in Buddhist thought? Sure. Justice is the second transcendent virtue. But, uh, you know, our connotation of just people don't usually translate it as justice, they say morality or ethics. But I think justice is, uh, I translate, I, I finally jumped to translate it as justice in my Infinite Life book, because that's the sort of real ancient word that the moralists use as a major virtue, you know. And we too much connote it with punishment, you know. Right. Like the the judge so-and-so, Judge Dredd comic books or something. Right. You know? Well, especially like in just sort of common political vernacular, the word justice is generally, you know, like we... We want justice. Yes, that's right. And then, then it comes to mean revenge and punishment and so forth. But actually in the ancient world, the world justice, I take it in a Buddhist sense of that the best thing for everybody concerned in a situation is just what should be there. So justness like justice. And so justice means that justice is defined actually in the Buddhist thing as uh, other regarding and other benefiting action. And uh, it is said to be the cause of humanity, actually, in an evolutionary way, that the animal, the animal that does naturally empathize and therefore has to sort of work themselves up to violate another, you know, due to special circumstance, because they're naturally kind of tender. They don't have, we don't have our armor-plated skin. We don't have big claws and fangs. Only the, the, the vampires in the movies, otherwise we don't have that. And we have the soft skin, and we, and uh, you know, se our sexuality is very much in mergerish kind of thing. We're not just sort of functional like like the lower mammals, even. And we are mammals, and the mammal, the idea of having somebody else take up uh, residence in your body is, is quite a, quite an altruistic thing to do, actually. Even though you know, well, there's all kind of legitimations. Oh, that you're doing your job, and it's really great. But it's you know, men are not exactly ready for it. You know, <laughs> and they say that. Your beauty comes from your past life's patience and non-anger. Your wealth comes from past life's generosity and openness and detachment. And your humanity comes from past life's justice. Because we're these inter-entangled beings, these human beings. You know, we're very, very cooperative and inter-social, very social, you know, mm. human, right? So yeah. that's, so it's a big concept, yes. It is. And Adalama always says, Peace without justice is not true peace because there's a steady state oppression going on during it, you know. Right, but but that by that definition, when he uses the word justice, he's not talking about retribution or no, no. fair treatment or punishment. Yeah. No, he's talking about appropriateness, really. Huh. You know, and the the being, and you can imagine, you know, by the if the definition of enlightenment is not. Like we, I think, unfortunately, many Buddhists think it's just like that one person, like that pop, and then their head goes off like a bulb or something, you know. 
and it's like you're great, and they feel really greater than anybody else. You know, they think so. They kind of have an egocentric idea of enlightenment, but that's for, which, not the definition. If enlightenment is by knowing reality, you transcend the idea that you are more special than the others, and you and you their heartbeat becomes as important to you as your own, effortlessly. You know, because you it's like your hand, the the condition of the skin on that hand it matters to this hand. You know. So it's like you're the limbs of one body, as they say, ancient classic work says. And if when you when you feel that way, then you want to do what is the best for all of the sensitivities present, you know. And then that will be justice. That will be the justness of that situation, the just rightness of that situation. And that's what it means, I think, basically. Yeah. But it can be for people who are not sort of who are just you know. It, it also can evolve into systems of law and systems of custom and duty and things like that. It does somewhat. Although in general, Buddhists are a little bit disobedient and very individualistic. Uh, actually, we're contrary to Western uh, stereotypes that Asian people are sort of all part of the tribe and then, and we're the individualists in the West. That's opposite, actually. Individualistic in the sense of taking responsibility for your contribution to the situation, you know, mm-hmm. that it be good because you're interwoven with its consequences. And that's why I harp about the rebirth thing and uh, certain modern Buddhists, quote-unquote, who want to act like they're, we're going to be materialist and scientific. It's the defining science as materialism, which is only lately that people do that. I challenge them all the time because a culture where the leadership and the mainstream of the people are accepting the view that their life has no real purpose and meaning, and you know that's where you throw that out with some sort of simplistic theism, and so the... And also, therefore, ultimately, their life has no consequence, even if it's really good. That That's a psychotic culture. That's why we're destroying the planet. We say, oh, my grandchildren are so much worried, but we're not turning off the switches, and we're not doing it because, you know, well, okay, maybe it won't be fit for human habitation, but then everybody will be dead and no one will miss being alive because they won't exist, and I won't exist. It's uh, It's irresponsible. It leads to the irresponsibility of our current elite, you know. Mm-hmm. That worldview. Yeah, it seems like everything just keeps coming back to the concept of non-separation. Yeah, um, relativity. Yeah. The em- famous Buddhist emptiness means relativity, actually. Uh. That's what it means. The reason they emphasize the emptiness, because it means that every relative thing is empty of any non-relative element. It's almost so simple, it's, it's a, you could almost jump for joy. <laughs> but then it's vis- viscerally complicated. Because we think we will fall apart if we don't feel that there's kind of an absolute us in here, you know. But but that's what then hardens our skin and isolates us from, from the world, actually. But we think it protects us. So it, viscerally, it's hard to understand, but it's very easy to understand. And the it, emptiness is emphasized to empty ourselves of that self-absolutizing sense of I'm the important, I'm the real, only real thing here, you know. That's what it is. Mm. And... Uh, I love the Matrix because, like, the Matrix, you know, becoming the one in the Matrix when Neo does, that's when he is still himself, and also he's the whole program, you know, and so he's actually merges with the, he doesn't realize the negative, because he's new to it, and at first when he has the realization, he merges with the agent, and then the agent gets this more expanded power, you know, and then gets out of hand, remember? But he defeats the agent in the third one, in the end, because they merge again. The agent thinks by punching him, he's going to make him into an agent. But actually, then the agent becomes him. So then everybody's cool, you know. Who knew that the Matrix would be this powerful teaching tool? <laughs> it 
the fundamental ideas of humanity, I think it is. right? It, te- it teaches the subliminality of our people and our culture. Yeah. Do you have time to tell me your feelings about the book at all? Yeah, I mean, so it's really interesting to me because to take normally, so what we're talking about here is it's not a graphic novel. It's in, it's the form of a graphic novel, yeah, but it's telling the very the nonfiction story. Yeah, yeah of the it's Dalai a graphic Lama biography. And... So at the Woodstock Book Fest just now, the lady corrected me and said, "Stop saying graphic novel." The the guy who brought me the project originally and got me involved in it was called it that. So we always were going around calling it that. But it's a graphic bio. You're yeah, right. and, and it's incredibly powerful, I think, because, and, and also what I love is it tells a story, mm-hmm. it tells it in vivid detail. Yeah. And it brings it to an audience that may well have never had an interest in diving so. into this. Yes. The, the ebook is out shortly. We've been slow getting it done. With yeah, this, I mean, I was floored also just by, the, I mean, this is a big book. Yes. And the detail of yes. the, this must have taken years. Yeah, it took, uh, it took many years, a decade. But the, and my heavy involvement was about three years yeah. with, the, with the five artists, and et cetera, and two colleagues, you know. Why? What's the why behind this? What's the, how did... Well, to, precisely to show this person that everybody sort of has a sense there's somebody extraordinary there. There's a leader of leaders. And, you know, of course, he's not getting his way in some ways, but everyone loves him anyway. And and then to show the detail that this guy suffered a lot, he's taken a lot of grief, and he still maintains that joy and nonviolence and non-resentment and so on, forgiveness, and to, to see the life and the difficulty and the, the, and, the, and to understand the, the the contribution of the Tibetan people, you know, who are they are indigenous people, and yet they are highly literate, and they're not, you know, they're they're highly literate, highly sophisticated preserving the most sophisticated psychology, spiritual psychology that ever existed, that of India, you know, where yoga came from, you know, and so on. And for the world, preserving and saving that science, science of the good life for the world. And uh, I just really felt it would be very helpful. My wife and I run Tibet House, which is a cultural preservation thing. And in a way, you could say the Dalai Lama himself is the is the most extraordinary cultural artifact of Tibetan culture. Do you know what I mean? His whole education, his life, he was like a, a peasant son, you know, who was a yak uh, caravan trader, you know, and mother was a farmer and so on from a remote place. And he became this great world inspirer, you know. And so I, I've just wanted people and young people to see there is a way, you know, there is a way of joyfully overcoming the power of the, of the dominators of the evils. You know, but without hating them, feeling, you know, feeling compassion for them. You know? Yeah. It's a story powerful told. And to see it visually told that way also That's, is, I, I, so. I want. I actually want to spend a lot more time with it and go through it a couple of times and sure. just kind of slow down. But we're going to have it where people can have it on their phones. So young oh, people, that's so yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah, it's like a comic. Yeah. Where they can get it, go panel by panel on the page. Oh, that's neat. Go through the page like that. Yeah, I love that. It's almost done now. You and I, I think, could probably talk for a lot longer, but I want to. I want to take us full circle. We've been going and talking for a while now. So the name of this is Good Life Project. So as as, okay. I, as we sit here, if I offer that phrase out to you to live a good life, what comes up? Yes, the good life. Well, I think the good life. Uh, actually, I can't really pretend that I live the ultimate good life. Although I take uh, refuge in the revision, the UCSF San Francisco revision of the type A personality uh, study that was done originally in Michigan. And it says that a workaholic or someone who's very devoted to like a mission work type of thing, a purpose work, 
if they love the work and are not just doing it for fame or profit or egocentric reasons, is not bad, dangerous for their health. And it's actually very, very good for their health and so forth. The workaholic who does something just to get money or fame or something, but they don't like what they're doing, that's very dangerous. That, that's the type A personality with the heart attack on Monday morning, when that's the vast amount of the heart attacks Man. cluster around Monday morning. And so you can have a good life and have stress and do something that's difficult and requires a, like a, be a great figure skater or something, a tremendous or a concert pianist or, violin, or a tremendous discipline involved and work very, very hard. So a good life is not necessarily only leisure. But I think the good life is, you know, Joseph Campbell said it very nicely Follow to, to um, Bill Moyers. Yeah. He said, follow your bliss, you know, which what he had told generations of Sarah Lawrence students. He said, follow your bliss. You know, do what you love to do and, uh, and uh, be with your love, you know, and make moments, quality moments by choosing always the positive and the loving and the patient and the self-restrained, et cetera, you know. There's a wonderful Indian verse from a, not from a Buddhist source, from a, what's called an Upanishadic Hindu source, where the little boy asks the old man, why does the thunder go da, da, da? And the old man says, well, the, that's what that is, is the thunder is telling you, the thunder bearer is telling you. Da means self-control, you know, self-restraint, you know, justice, ethics, you know. Da means be compassionate. You know, that's uh, Dhamma and Daya. And then Da means be generous. So when the thunder goes Da, 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 the universe is telling you, be just, be compassionate, and be generous. Even the thunder tells you. And the little boy says, oh, that's nice, Grandpa. You know? <laughs> that's the Indian one, you know. Because India, India was the great mother, you know. Of, the, of Eurasia, you know, it was the richest country in the in the Buddha's time, in the Axial Age time, you know, Buddha and Isaiah and Confucius, all, all throughout Eurasia. And so people were not so freaked out that nature was withholding something from them there, you know, I think in that sense. And therefore they developed this wonderful language and they were the original melting pot. So they have very sweet things like in the moon in Buddhist countries, they see a bunny who is offering himself to a traveler who's starving in a competition of animals to who can be the most altruistic. And so there's a self-sacrificing bunny in the moon. Not, and I always remember that in my youth, there was a grumpy old man in the moon who was like had a, holding a lamp to see if you were being naughty. You know? So that's, the, that's what those are. The, so we have to be accustomed to this kind of better, more relaxed and cheerful culture. Then we'll have a better life, I think. That, and that's the whole you know, the Beatles, why did they love the Indian the Maharishi so much? And they went to India and they did this and that. And the Ragas, remember, remember Ravi Shankar and so on. This some beauty comes from there. You know, it's terrible. We think of it as terribly poor now because after like, you know, 500 years of colonial extraction, it is poor. But, but also there's terrific wealth there, you know, still, even today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. I enjoyed Goodbye. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If the stories and ideas in any way moved you, I would so appreciate if you would take just a few extra seconds for two quick things. One, if it's touched you in some way, if there's some idea or moment in the story or in the conversation 
that you really feel like you would share with somebody else, that it would make a difference in somebody else's life. Take a moment and whatever app you're using, just share this episode with somebody who you think it'll make a difference for. Email it if that's the easiest thing, whatever is easiest for you. And then of course, if you're compelled, subscribe so that you can stay a part of this continuing experience. My greatest hope with this podcast is not just to produce moments um, and share stories and ideas that impact one person listening, but to let it create a conversation, to let it serve as a catalyst for the elevation of all of us together collectively, because that's how we rise. When stories and ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change happens. And I would love to invite you to participate on that level. Thank you so much as always for your intention, for your attention, for your heart. And um, I wish you only the best. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. And just a quick reminder, as you head out into the world, we would love to see you. I would love to see you at Camp GLP. We are actually um, running out of spots and the final price discount, $100 early bird discount ends June 28th. So be sure to check it out and grab your spot. You can find more information at goodlifeproject.com slash camp or just click the link in the show notes now.